Our gracious God and heavenly Father, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And so we pray, Father, that you'd sanctify us now in the truth. Your word is truth. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us all for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved Son who lives with you and who reigns with you together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. Amen. Well, this week, millions of Americans celebrated yet another Thanksgiving. Turkey was eaten. Families gathered. Cranberry sauce was loved and despised. Football was watched. Naps were taken. But in all of these things, who was thanked? In his book, Gratitude, atheist Oliver Sacks wrote this right before he died. My predominant feeling is one of gratitude. I have loved and been loved. I have been given much. Above all, I have been a sentient being, a thinking animal on this beautiful planet. And that in itself has been an enormous privilege, end quote. Another famous critic of Christianity describes the same feeling of gratitude as a problem. Quote, the problem is this. I have such a fantastic life and I have an overwhelming sense of gratitude for it. I am fortunate beyond words but I don't have anyone to express my gratitude to. This is a void deep inside me, a void of wanting someone to thank. And I don't see any plausible way of filling it. End quote. Perhaps... Like these men, you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but you share this feeling of gratitude. Well, friend, have you ever considered that the void in the heart of your gratitude is actually a problem to solve? Or better yet, a clue to the solution? Brothers and sisters, we who know the Lord, we also have a gratitude problem, namely our ingratitude. The church of Jesus Christ has infinite reasons to be thankful and not a single reason to grumble. And this morning, as we turn to God's word in Paul's letter to the Colossians, we are graciously reminded, brothers and sisters, of just how much we have to be thankful for. So if you have your Bibles, please open it up to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 9 to 14. That's where we're going to be this morning. 
If you're using the pew in the seat back in front of you, you can find this on page 983. If you're not used to reading a Bible, uh, those chapter numbers are the big numbers, and then the little sentence numbers are verse numbers. And so I'm looking at big number one, little number nine to 14. And as you turn there, let me just briefly set the context. If you don't know anything about Colossians. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison to a church in Colossae, a small town about 100 miles down the road from Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. He's writing from prison to a church he'd never been to, a church he didn't even start. A guy named Epaphras, chapter 1, verse 7, brought word to Paul of how things were going in Colossae. The gospel was growing, but... There was this threat of a false teaching that was threatening to infiltrate the church. Chapter 2, verse 8. And this false teaching diminished the importance of Jesus. Every false teaching does that. It was threatening to diminish the value and the importance of Jesus. So, so Paul writes this letter, to, gives it to Epaphras who takes it back to the church in Colossae. And if you want one overarching theme of the letter to the Colossians is this. The supremacy of Christ over all things. A three-word summary of Colossians is Christ above all. And so in verses 3 to 8, Paul gives thanks for God's work in the Colossian church. And then he gets to verse 9, our passage and he tells the Colossians the content of his unceasing prayer for them. Let's listen now to God's word. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, I wanna briefly give you the structure of the passage so that you'll know where we're going. The main purpose of Paul's prayer that he offers here is found in verse 10. So don't look at me, look at your Bibles. In verse 10, here's the purpose of the prayer. Do you see it? Verse 10, so as to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. Do you see that? And then the next phrase, Paul defines what worthy of the Lord means. Namely, to be fully pleasing to the Lord Jesus. So Paul's prayer, his purpose is that the Colossian church would be fully pleasing to Jesus in everything. That's his prayer. And beginning in verse 10 through the rest of the, of the section, 
you're going to see these participles. Now, you're going to have to put your thinking caps on. Remember eighth grade English? Mrs. Cayley taught me this. Participles are those ing words that help get the main verb done, right? So if you look at your Bible, you're going to see these participles show up. Verse 10, first two participles, bearing fruit and increasing. Verse 11, be strengthened. Verse 12, giving thanks. Do you see that? So this is the point. Paul is praying for the Colossians to be a church that pleases Jesus in everything. And then he tells us in the prayer the the ways that they can go about doing that. And so, and so, if you want a one-sentence summary of our passage, here it is. What does a Jesus-pleasing church look like? That's the question. What does a Jesus-pleasing church look like? Paul's answer in this prayer is this. A Jesus-pleasing church grows in wisdom, godliness, strength, and gratitude. A Jesus-pleasing church, verse 10, grows in wisdom, verse 9, godliness, verse 10, strength, verse 11, and gratitude, verses 12 to 14. Y'all with me? One person's with me. Okay, great. Well, my prayer is that UBC, by God's grace, pleases Jesus in everything. Number one, a Jesus-pleasing church asks God for wisdom. Verse 9, a Jesus-pleasing church asks God for wisdom. We can't please Jesus unless we have his wisdom, as, until we know the knowledge of his will. That's what Paul prays in verse 9. Look at it again. From the day we heard, we, that's Paul and Timothy, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here it is, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So the first way that a church pleases Jesus is by asking for wisdom from above. Spirit-given wisdom is a prerequisite to pleasing Jesus. If you rely on your own wisdom as a church, guess what? You won't please Jesus. You will please yourself. So Paul says, Lord, fill them with the knowledge of your will in all spirit-given wisdom and spirit-given understanding. Now that phrase, knowledge of, knowledge of God's will, when we talk about knowing God's will, we almost always speak of knowing God's will as the private plan that God has for our individual lives. We say things like we pray for, to know God's will. We want to know how it relates to our jobs, to our future, uh, to a relationship, to a decision that's coming up. And we should pray for those things. But in Colossians especially, if you keep reading chapter 1 and chapter 2, God's will, the knowledge of God's will, has more to do with his glorious saving purposes in Jesus Christ revealed in the gospel. Where am I getting that from? 
Look at your, look at your Bible again. Look at verse nine. You see those two words in your Bible that start verse nine? It, your Bible may say, and so, or for this reason. Do you see that? So Paul has just prayed and given thanks to God in verses three to eight, and he said that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the world, the word of truth. It's, it's, the gospel is spreading widely in the world. And then he says, for this reason, I pray that you would know God's will. And so I understand the knowledge of God's will to be connected to God's plan, his saving plan as revealed in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is so practical, right? When you are praying to know God's will, his private plan for your life, you seek counsel from uh, your family, from your elders, from a friend. But when you make a big life decision, do you know what Paul is telling us here? You don't make a big life decision without relating it to the gospel. The gospel of the glory of Christ is the north star for your decisions, Christian. You ought to be asking in everything, will this decision honor Jesus? Will this decision bring glory to Jesus? What can I do in this job or in this relationship that's going to please Christ, the one for whom he came and died for us? So what what does this mean for us as a church? As a church, it means, brothers and sisters, we don't look for wisdom from the world to know how we ought to walk and please Jesus. If we look to worldly wisdom, we will run astray and run aground just like the Colossians were tempted to. We know from Colossians chapter 2 that they were at risk of being taken captive by worldly philosophy, by a kind of self-made religion. And brothers and sisters, the spiritual wisdom of our world sounds the same. This is what our world tells us. Follow your heart, rely on your own experience, listen to your own desires, trust yourself, obey your instincts, live your own truth, go with your gut feeling. That is not wisdom according to the Bible. That is foolishness. It's like following the directions of a broken compass. The Bible teaches us that the fundamental problem is outside, isn't outside of us. It's actually us. It's us. It's, it's inside of us. We're broken. We're broken. Because of the rebellion of our first parents, we're all born into this world as sinners. We are born with a spiritual compass inside of us that is broken. And if we follow it, it will always lead us in the wrong direction. And that's what was happening in Colossae. There was a false teaching. And listen, this false teaching, it actually looked pretty good from the outside. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 23, listen, it had the appearance of wisdom. It looked kind of wise from the outside. But then Paul goes on to say, it was absolutely worthless in stopping the indulgence of the flesh because it was not 
God's wisdom. Friend, listen to me. Left to yourself, left to your own desires, you will not figure out how to please your maker. You will search and you will find eventually a self-made religion that looks really wise on the outside, but friend, it will fail you in the end. The wisdom you need is not inside of you. The wisdom that you need came down from heaven. The wonder of wonders is that in the gospel, the only wise God came down for us and for our salvation. He, because of his great love for us, took on flesh, the son of God, and he dwelt among us. And listen to what Paul says about him. The one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Look at verse 15. Just skip down a little bit. Look at verse 15. Who is this one who is our savior? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Oh friend, this one we just read about went to the cross where he made peace for his people, for anyone who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. He made peace through the blood of his cross. And he is offering you this morning peace, peace with your maker, reconciliation with the God that we've turned our back on our whole lives. Oh friend, will you turn from your sin? And will you receive this one, this one who died and rose again in the empty hands of faith? Brothers and sisters, when we gather as a church, we don't gather to hear the latest and greatest ideas that our pastors have come to come up with. That's not why we gather. We gather because we want to hear God's wisdom. Amen? That's why we're here. And so in Paul's letters, he often prays for something at the beginning of the letter, and then he commands something later in the letter. He prays for wisdom, for God to fill the church with wisdom. And you know what he commands later? Chapter 3, verse 16. Where's this wisdom going to come from? Chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in what? All wisdom. You see it? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. That's what we aim to do every time we gather as a church. We want to read, hear, sing, preach, and believe the word of Christ. Because a church pleases Jesus by asking for wisdom. That's number one. 
Number two, a Jesus-pleasing church grows in godliness. Verse 10, a Jesus-pleasing church grows in godliness. Wisdom is worthless if you don't put it into practice. Wisdom's worthless if you don't put it into practice. And so Paul wants the Colossians to put this wisdom he's prayed for into practice. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How can you tell that the word of truth, the gospel, is active and alive in a church? Well, according to verse 10, that church is going to grow in godliness. That's how I understand these two participles, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The more we bear fruit, that is, the more we obey God's word, the more we know God better. And then it goes, and then the more we know God better, the more we bear fruit in every good work. It's this spiral that Paul's talking about here. Now, when you hear the phrase church growth these days, it's almost always in reference to numerical growth. When you speak to pastors and you say, Is your church growing? What they're asking often is, How large is your church? How many members do you have? That's what we think of when we think of church growth. But when Paul uses this language of, of growth, this language of bearing fruit, he's not talking necessarily about numerical growth. He's borrowing an illustration from Jesus. Remember the parable of the sower? What did Jesus say? When God's word, when the seed of God's word lands on good soil, what happens? We're told, Mark 4.20, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, and what? Bear fruit. Bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So church growth, according to this verse, is bearing the fruit of godliness. And if you wonder, like, what, what are the good works Paul wants us as a church to, to, to bear fruit in? What are some of the specific ones? You can, this afternoon, you can read the rest of Colossians takes you 13 minutes to read it out loud. But if you want to just one example, look at chapter 3, verse 12. Here's some good fruit that we want to bear by God's grace. Chapter 3, verse 12. Here's the kind of church growth Paul has in mind. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Brothers and sisters, according to this passage, do you know what church growth would look like here at UBC? It's not simply that we would just grow in numbers. We want to grow. I, I pray that the, that the whole room is filled. But according to this verse, this is what church growth would look like. 
It's that we would grow in godliness. It's that we would grow in compassion toward one another. It's that we would grow in kindness and patience towards one another. That we would grow in our forgiveness of one another. That we would grow in our gratitude for one another. As I've served as a pastor here, as one of the elders for the last few months, I've had a front row seat to see how God is growing this church in these kinds of good works. And my encouragement to you and my charge to you, UBC, is excel still more. Excel still more. Let's pray that we would be a church that is zealous for good works. That is, that adorns good works in everything that we do. I got an email this, this, this week from Davey Stallings. And he, he said, so encouraging. He said, I've memorized this passage and I pray it for myself, for my family, and my church. Praise God. Let's be like Davy. Let's, let's do the same thing. Let's pray this passage for UBC, that we, would, that we would abound in every good work. And let me just ask you one, one quick thing. Do you believe, Christian, that when you obey, that you actually please Jesus? We never obey Jesus perfectly. But when we obey him faithfully, he's pleased. When we rely on his wisdom and we obey his word, when we grow in good works as a church, Paul says we bring pleasure to the heart of Christ. What a wonderful motivation for obedience. To bring delight to our Savior, it delights the heart of Christ when he sees those for whom he died. When he sees those for whom he prepared good works for to obey him. When a child draws a picture for his dad and hands it to the dad, he doesn't look at it and say, this is ugly, it's not perfect. When we obey Jesus faithfully, even though we obey him imperfectly, Paul says, when we bear these good works, this good fruit, it pleases the Savior. Before, we didn't care about good works, did we? Paul says in chapter 1, verse 21, we used to be devoted to doing evil deeds. But what has he done? He has died for us in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Children, do you believe this? Chapter 3, verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. I love the way Kevin DeYoung puts it. Quote, There is no righteousness that makes us right with God except for the righteousness of Christ. But for those who've been made right with God by grace, our righteous deeds are not only not filthy in God's eyes, they are exceedingly pleasing to him. So brothers and sisters, as a church, 
Let us pray that we would be a church that, that abounds in good works, that we are a church that, that seeks to grow in godliness. And as we bear fruit in every good work, we will know God better. That's what Paul says in verse 10. Because a Jesus-pleasing church grows in wisdom and grows in godliness. Now, where are we going to get the resources to do this? Who, who, who wakes up in the morning and thinks, I've got all the power I need to do this? None of us do. Well, that brings us to point number three. Look at verse 11. A Jesus-pleasing church relies upon God's strength. A Jesus-pleasing church relies upon God's strength. Verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. So verse 11, brothers and sisters, is like the Energizer battery. I almost said Energizer bunny, but like only like half the people here would know what I'm talking about. Just kids, talk to me later. The Energizer battery, that's verse 11. So nothing short of God's almighty power at work in the church can enable us to do the things that Paul's praying for. We need omnipotence to do what God, what Paul is praying for in this verse. How do we know it's omnipotence? Look at the, look at the verse again. We're being strengthened, notice, with all power. Being strengthened, that's a passive verb. That means God is the one who is doing the strength. We're not relying on our own strength. God is the one empowering. He's the one strengthening. And he's strengthening us with omnipotence, with all power. It's power. This is that last phrase. I don't even know what it means. According to his glorious might. That, all I know is that's really strong. That's really strong. According to the might of God's glory. That's the amount of power Paul's praying for. And according to this, Paul, God says that he empowers his church with omnipotence. It's the same power that Paul's going to mention in chapter 2, verse 12. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is resurrection power. So if you look around this church and you say, where is God's resurrection omnipotent power on display? What is all this power for that Paul's talking about here? This is amazing. Look at the end of verse 11. What's it for? It's for or unto all endurance and patience. God's almighty strength, his unsearchable power, his omnipotence is on display in the church as the church endures and shows patience. Endurance is the ability to bear up under difficult circumstances. And patience is the ability to endure difficult people. Your Bible may say long-suffering. So just think about what Paul's saying. Friend, do you want to see God's omnipotence his resurrection power on display at UBC. Just look around this church. In my short time here, I've seen brothers and sisters 
day after day, week after week, month after month, show patience to a difficult person, a difficult spouse, a difficult boss, and not give up. I've seen brothers and sisters in this church in impossible situations, relying upon God's strength alone. I've seen brothers and sisters who are weak in the eyes of the world endure afflictions and hardships and calamities and not give up. Verse 11 is telling us Struggling saints who patiently endure are monuments to God's almighty power. Struggling saint, if you're feeling weak this morning, if you're feeling like you don't have enough strength to get to tomorrow, know from this verse, Christ's omnipotence is on your side. All of God's attributes are on your side in Christ. His power is available to you. By faith you may rest your weary soul this morning at the feet of Jesus and ask him for strength for today. Brothers and sisters, Paul is an example of this, isn't he? Think about all the suffering and trials, all the difficult people and the difficult situations that the apostle Paul was in. I mean, think about this. Paul's writing this letter from prison. I mean, Paul's praying for a church he'd never been to. I don't even pray this much for a church I, I'm a member of, right? Paul goes through all these trials. How does he get through it? Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Here's how he does it. Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Look at verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, his power, that he mightily works within me. You see, brothers and sisters, Paul knew that he was weak. And so he relied upon the power of God. And that's what we are called to do as a church. A Jesus-pleasing church relies upon God's strength, not our own. So I must ask, whose strength are we relying upon at UBC? Are we relying upon our own or on the Lord's? We will never ask for strength until we know just how weak we are. Our strength is not found in our budget. It is not found in our elders. It is not found in our staff. It is not found in our facilities or in our programs. Our only strength is found in knowing our great weakness. So what do we do? We sang earlier, Jesus knows our every what? Weakness. Take it to the Lord in what? Prayer. Prayer, brothers and sisters, 
is simply telling the Lord day by day all the ways that we are weak and helpless. That's what prayer is. It's telling the Lord day by day all the ways that we are weak and helpless. When we pray on the Lord's day, corporately, we are putting our weakness on public display and we're putting God's strengthening omnipotence on display. When we gather as a church on Sunday evenings in the chapel to pray for that sweet hour of prayer, we are putting on display where we truly believe our strength is found. Will you join us? My prayer is that there's so many people at prayer meeting, we gotta move it from the chapel to here. How great would that be? No more room in the chapel. We're going to the main hall. That would be awesome. Pray for that. What could be more important to a congregation than casting ourselves down in humility before our good and gracious God and begging him to strengthen us as a church? What could be more important than that? Brothers and sisters, a Jesus-pleasing church grows in wisdom and grows in godliness and grows in strength. One more and we're done. Number four and last point. A Jesus-pleasing church overflows with gratitude to God. Verses 12 to 14. A Jesus-pleasing church overflows with gratitude to God, verses 12 to 14. In verses 12 to 14, we learn that a church pleases Jesus by overflowing, by abounding in thanksgiving, in gratitude. Look at it again, verse 12. With joy or joyfully giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now there is so much glory in these three verses. We will likely be here until next Thanksgiving. Um, I just wanna highlight three briefly. There's three specific reasons Paul gives for, for us to be thankful. First reason, Number one, God has qualified us. Verse 12, you see that? The Father who has qualified you. Qualified means that he has, as it were, made us fit to receive an inheritance. We were unfit to receive his inheritance before. But God made us fit. He qualified us. The wages of our sin was eternal death in hell. That's what our sins earned us. So God in his mercy makes us fit to receive a different inheritance. The father of mercy has lavished his grace upon us that even though while many of us are Gentiles, we have an inheritance from God. He has authorized us. He's made us fit to receive a glorious inheritance the inheritance of the saints in light. We had orphaned ourselves, brothers and sisters, by our sin. But God in his mercy, because of his amazing grace, 
We've been accepted in the beloved. We've been adopted as firstborn sons. And now, instead of hell, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. Christian, give thanks to God this morning that you have a hope laid up for you in heaven. Whatever you're going through this day, if you're in Christ, you have hope laid up for you in heaven. That's your inheritance. And then in verses 13 to 14, he keeps going. He tells us, well, how exactly did God qualify us? He tells us, first, he's delivered us and he's transferred us. Verse 13, he's delivered or rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We were all alone in the dark. We dwelt in a kingdom of darkness. We were in the dark. We were enslaved to sin, Satan, and death. That's where we were. But our father rescued us. He delivered us from that domain. And he brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Oh, church, how could we not, as God's people, say to our father constantly, thank you, thank you, thank you. He's redeemed us and he's forgiven us. Look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, in God's beloved son, we have redemption. Don't miss the tense of that verb. God qualified us, God rescued us, God transferred us, and now in Christ we have today and forever the forgiveness of all of our sins. You will never, you will never get out of that present tense verb. Hallelujah. You are redeemed, Christian. All of your sins forgiven, past, present, and future. We've been redeemed from our slavery to sin. We've been ransomed. We've been bought with the blood of Christ. We've got a new master and he's a good master. His name is Jesus. Church, we ought to be abounding in thanksgiving. We ought to be overflowing in thanksgiving. We deserved nothing from God but his wrath. And we have received nothing from God but his grace. We were hopeless without God in the world, but now by his grace through the gospel, we've been ushered into the glorious kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom prophesied and promised to David. And guess what? This kingdom is being filled up with Gentiles from all nations, every tribe and nation and tongue, just as God had promised to Abraham. And in the new covenant, we are enjoying even this moment the pinnacle blessing of the new covenant, the forgiveness of all of our sins. Oh, church, give thanks this morning. And brothers and sisters, I told you at the beginning, there was a false teaching creeping into the church. And this is why Paul is so focused on gratitude here. Because here's the deal. Gratitude guards the church. You won't abandon what you're thankful for. 
If you're thankful for your wife, you won't leave her. If you're thankful for the gospel, if you're overflowing with gratitude, you don't, you're not tempted to leave Christ. And that's what Paul is doing here. But as we close, I want to just highlight one thing. Many of you pointed this out this week. As you listen to Paul's thanksgiving in verses 12 to 14, you should hear the echo of the Old Testament scriptures. When you hear those words, qualified, inheritance, rescued, redeemed, brought into the kingdom. Why is Paul using those Old Testament words that are from the Exodus? Why is he using those in a prayer of thanksgiving? Well, here's why. He wants to remind his readers of Israel who was qualified for an inheritance in the promised land, who was rescued from Egypt, who was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who was brought into the promised land, and who grumbled every step of the way. Just like Israel, the church of Jesus Christ is prone to forget God's saving works and to murmur and to complain and to grumble. Christian, you celebrated Thanksgiving this week. What came out of your mouth? I know what you put in your mouth, turkey and stuffing, dressing, whatever you call it. But what came out of your mouth this week? Gratitude? Thanksgiving? Or complaining? As a church, we should be a church that abounds in thanksgiving. We need to repent and confess of any grumbling. And we should pray that God gives us such an awareness of his grace that we can't help but to point out the grace that's all around us in this church and to give God thanks for it. Thanksgiving in the church is not a sign that we are well-mannered. It is a sign that we are converted. It's a sign that we're converted from our idolatry, Romans 1.21. A Christian is someone whose entire life has been transformed from ingratitude to gratitude. And every day for us as a church is Thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, if you were to ask those who were in the Exodus, who just come out of Egypt, you'd ask them right after that first Passover, if you'd stop the Israelites and you'd said, who are you and where are you going? They would have said this. Well, we were slaves. We were under the sentence of death. But we took shelter under the blood of the lamb and by God's glorious might, we've been rescued from our bondage. And now God lives in our midst and we're following him to the promised land. Oh, church, we were slaves to sin, Satan, and death. And we were bound for death, but by God's grace, we took shelter under the blood of a spotless lamb. We've been rescued from that bondage. And now God lives in our midst 
And thanks be to God, by faith, we are on our way to the promised land. We have so much to be thankful for. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we cast ourselves down now before your majesty, asking from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root in us and dwell in us so richly that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares and fleeting pleasures of this life choke it out, but that by your spirit, as seed sown in good soil, it might bring forth 30 and 60 and a hundredfold, all for the glory of your dearly beloved Son, our blessed Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen.